Alright everyone, welcome to Jurassic Black Tongues. This is our side project thing we're going to be doing periodically. We're going to be calling it Baby Giraffes. Basically what it is, as you all heard in the previous episode, Ralph explained it a little bit. It's sort of solo episodes that we're going to do just because Ralph and I's uh, work schedules are a little bit conflicting, so we don't always have time to get together and record new episodes for everyone. So this way we can at least get more content out to you without necessarily having to be together to record. I'm going to give it a shot here, try giving you the first episode. I've been reading a lot of really great comic books lately, and I just wanted to get on here and record something, get it all out there, share my thoughts on everything I've been reading before I forget everything I've just read. So there's a lot of the indie books that I've been reading lately, but I've also, of course, been reading some Marvel and some DC stuff as well, like always. Very first one I'm going to talk about here is kind of the biggest one I think I've gotten into. It's the new Defenders book by Marvel. Um, this is, I believe, the very last thing that's written by Brian Michael Bendis before he ended up leaving Marvel to go and head over in DC. I was a little bit skeptical about this book at first just because the team cast on the cover of it is just the set of four pe- people from the series. So I was thinking it was going to be just a giant fucking commercial for the Netflix series, which to be fair, it sort of is. It's just that it's so entertaining that you can kind of overlook it. Fortunately. So basically it's Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, and Iron Fist, of course. They all know each other ahead of time. This isn't like the retelling of that series where they're all just meeting and getting into know each other. Cage and Jones are of course already married. They have been for years in the books, so I'm glad they didn't like try to restart everything. Cage and Fist are still best friends. They've still got the heroes for hire, and so I'm really happy that they didn't like do a complete refucking uh, telling of the backstory for them. Basically, to start off, what's going on is all four of the defenders, their identities are somehow known by a mysterious enemy who's targeting all of them. Like Matt Murdock gets out, attacked outside of a trial by a drive-by. Um, the heroes for hire's office gets blown up in the middle of the daylight in New York City and almost takes out Luke Cage. He has to save some children from the blast. Jessica Jones gets shot a couple times by a mysterious attacker. She gets hospitalized because of that. All the defenders think it's someone within Kingpin's organization. So Danny Rand goes to this big gala for all the billionaires of New York City. And he meets Kingpin there, confronts him face to face. Kingpin explains to him he's out of the crime game. He's trying to become a politician. So what's going on is actually that all the crime mob bosses in New York are all trying to gun for that top kingpin spot that he vacated. We find out that Diamondback, the main villain in the Luke Cage Netflix series, who is back from the dead somehow, he's the main one orchestrating all this. He's the one who's trying to take over because he's got these new enhanced, sort of like a super soldier type of uh, powers he somehow has. We don't know exactly how he gets them. Not yet, at least. We're going to find that out further down the line in the story. But he's, he's the main one trying to target all the uh, uh, defenders. The other great thing about this series is there's a ton of cameos from big time, underrated Marvel support characters and like other guys just out of nowhere. I mean, we've got Alicia Hardy, the Black Cat. She gets confronted very early on by Diamondback the first time we like actually see Diamondback in the story. He breaks into a uh, Black Cat's hideout or her home, whatever. And he proposes that they join forces. Black Cat, of course, formerly of the Defenders. She's lately been more of a uh, villain character than she has a uh, good guy or anything. Like She's kind of DC turned Catwoman full-on good guy. Marvel has been trying to turn Black Cat 
full-on villain for some reason. In addition to her, we also have the Night Nurse, the Linda Carter version, not the Rosario Dawson character that was made up for the TV shows, but Linda Carter is basically the one who has to heal all of the defenders every time they get jumped and just randomly get what should be hospitalized. But because they're superheroes, they have to go to a underground sort of uh, hospital recovery center and just get worked on by her. We also have Blade make a cameo in there, which is always great to see Blade. Love Blade. Uh, Damien Hellstorm, he shows up for a second. He's in there as the uh, main enforcer in the Black Cat's new gang that she runs. Um, overall, it's a pretty great story. I, I really enjoyed it. It's a lot of fun to read. I really loved all the random cameos and just surprise appearances out of nowhere for people. Like Blade, for no reason at all, just shows up because he's collecting some kind of poison cure to cure Luke Cage and save his life. He just drops it off. He tells Linda Carter, you owe me one. And he just disappears. That's his whole, that's the whole thing that Blade does. That's it. I mean, yeah, really good book. Definitely worth checking out. What else have I been reading? Uh, let's see. There's an image comic, comic book called The Wicked and the Divine. So the backstory of The Wicked and the Divine is basically that every 90 years, there is a group of people called the Pantheon. They're regular people who discover that they get merged with previously living deities. So they basically get all these god powers for the uh, remainder of their lifespan, which if you're a member of the Pantheon, your lifespan then only lasts two years since the day you originally get your powers. So it's kind of a catch-22 where you get these amazing god powers, but you die within two years. You can die sooner as we learn immediately in the very first issue, but you're expected to live a solid two years as a god. They're worshipped more as like pop star musicians than they are as actual gods. Um, for some reason, they all do perform concerts regularly. So I don't, I don't really know what's going on with all of that. But yeah, that's a big part of it too. Because they, they perform concerts and they get death threats at these concerts. And the rumor is if you kill one of the uh, gods, you get to take over their powers for the remainder of that two-year lifespan. When the Pantheon returns, they're, they're led by a woman named Anaki. A lot of these names are ones that I'm going to completely fuck up and butcher, like ridiculously. <laughs> so, oh well. I'm going to say her name is Anaki. Basically, she's a really, 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 really fucking ancient old old woman who uh, somehow reveals each of the deities when they uh, return. She gets killed off later on, but for, for the very beginning, that's, that's what she does. She's supposed to be like their guide, their sort of a guiding light, godmother, then mother type of character. You don't realize she's bad until around like issue four. As far as the gods go, there's one called Amara. Madarasu, there's, that's a girl. There's a male named Ball. There is another guy named Dionysus, who fortunately they all just called Dio, so that one's easy. There's another guy named Inanna. There is one, the very first one we meet, Lucifer. So basically what the story follows is this 17 year old girl who's like a diehard fan of the Pantheon. They, they're treated, like I said, like fucking pop stars. So she's kind of like the ultimate groupie for them. She just follows them around and tries to get autographs and pictures anytime she can. She'll go to their, like every fucking concert they perform. So Laura Wilson originally meets Lucifer very early on, like the very first issue after uh, Lucifer makes an appearance. Another character besides her, uh, Minerva. She's the youngest of the Pantheon. She's only a 12-year-old girl. Uh, Ball kind of looks after her like her his kid sister. Um, there's another one named Woden who 
Warden is kind of like this weird ninja guy. He only wears a suit that looks like it's straight out of the movie Tron. And he's got Valkyries that he's always flanked by. Another one is called the Morrigan. She's the queen of the underworld. Um, and sorry, Morgan has three different uh, personalities that, that all make random appearances. Um, one's like her good version, one is her bad version, and the other one's just this overly aggressive monster killer version. She is probably my favorite character in this whole series. She also has her ex-boyfriend who, when she first got her power, she begged Anaki to make her boyfriend a uh, member of the Pantheon as well. We learned his name is Baphomet. Thankfully, he just goes by Baph. Later on, way down the line, we learn that he's actually the deity known as Nurgle. So he is, as well, a god. Laura Wilson, eventually, she's the very last of the gods to be revealed. And her god deity name is Persephone. Uh, there's another one of them named Sakmet. She's kind of like a cat woman for some reason. I, I don't know why. She's got cat claws and like fangs and she lusts for blood. She's kind of the most terrifying of all the characters, I think. Um, and then the other one, there is Aurora, who I know I'm absolutely butchering that fucking name and saying it wrong. Basically, I'm just going to call her Cassandra. That's who she was in the world before she became a god. Um, she was initially a part of a uh, documentary crew. I was making a film about the Pantheon and, and the legend of them. Uh, eventually, she's she's like one of the only people who are humans alive that don't want to become a part of the Pantheon. But at the very end, she does eventually become one of them. She's also flanked by uh, two sidekick girls who, who, according to the story, are like her sisters. So I guess they're not gods as well, but they're always with her as sort of her underlings, kind of like the Valkyries are for Woden. And then the very last one is Terra. Um, Terra, honestly, I kind of completely forgot about. She shows up a couple times, and she's killed off super early on as well. For Terra, Lucifer, and Inyana have all been killed off. Each of the gods has their own special, like, skill set. Woden is the master maker. He, he makes all these amazing uh, body armor pieces for himself and the Valkyries. He also makes them, like, the most unstoppable weapons. So you learn in Volume 4 that Anaki has had Woden working for her building some kind of master contraption that we don't really know what the hell it's supposed to be. She says it's to prevent the darkness from taking over this earth. She is killed by Persephone at the end of Volume 4. Persephone was the one god who no one really knew what her role was as far as being a god. We learn then that she gets nicknamed Boyer, which... Anaki used that nickname on her to try and get the other gods against her. I guess the Destroyer is a part of the darkness. She was trying to get them all to not trust her anymore. So even after she kills Anaki, there is a strained relationship between her and most of the remaining gods. A couple of exceptions being the ones that she had had like, solid relationships with previously before all of this falling out happened. It focuses all on the aftermath of that whole big showdown that they have against Anaki. She's dead now. They have to figure out what it was that she was trying to accomplish with that giant machine. She told them that it was a part of something to help fend off the darkness. We've never seen the darkness before, but randomly it starts attacking. It's mostly centered on not going after Minerva, who is the youngest, most defenseless member of the Pantheon. She always has Bull around her, who is arguably, other than Sagmet, probably the strongest member. So he's always there to fend him off and save her and keep her safe. 
like I said before, he's got that little sister type of relationship with her where he always looks out for Minerva and keeps her safe. So what goes on here is the 10 remaining gods, they have a sit-down meeting here where they're trying to figure out what route they need to take, what's the best course of action going forward. Ball, Minerva, and Amaterasu, they all decide that what they need to do is try to fight the darkness head-on and just try to figure out a way to take care of it. It's the top priority. It's what needs to get done. Cassandra, Dio, and Woden, they all decide that the more pressing matter is figuring out what the fuck that machine was and all the other crazy contraptions that Anaki had built. They need to figure out what it was that she thought she could accomplish with it and try to do some research to look into like what may help them in the future. The other three, uh, Morgan, Aff, and Sacrament, they all decide that they just want to let Anarchy rule. They don't give a fuck either way. They don't care what everyone else wants to do. They can do whatever they want. They just don't want any part of it. Um, so it's 3-3-3, three, 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 and they all decide and agree. Whoever breaks the tie, whatever Persephone votes for, that's what everyone else is going to follow. She goes with Shivix for Anarchy as well, which surprises all because those two kind of have a relationship going on even in spite of this even though they all agreed that whatever the, the vote came down to they would all like go that route the three that wanted to research everything they're still going to research everything the three that want to try to fight the darkness and save minerva that's what they're going to do while the others are just going to go and do whatever they want so that kind of creates a falling out between ball and persephone she then starts hanging out with sakmat and the two of them start spending a lot of time together there is a research professor named David Blake who was helping Cassandra initially with her documentary that she was making before she realized that she was a deity. And the three research members, they, they kind of bring him along and try to start getting his opinion to see if he can maybe help them figure out what it is that was going on with all this equipment. Um, we learn at the very end, the last thing we see in the book, is we learn that David Blake's son is the actual true identity of Woden. And that's kind of the cliffhanger that they leave you off on for the next issue. And so then the other indie book I've been reading lately, this one may be the most kid-friendly one I think I've ever read. It's called The Lumberjanes. It's a story about a girl's summer camp that actually it turns out is on some kind of magical, mystical campground where they interact constantly with all kinds of like weird mystical dream creatures and stuff and monsters so basically the characters in this one you have april who's kind of like the leader you have joe who's the brains of the group you have ripley who's the youngest member and she's the comic relief and you have molly who's sort of like this strong silent type one i guess and mal who is sort of also the other part of the brains she and joe work together a lot to figure shit out and build so She's terrified of water too. Um, their camp counselor is this woman named Rosie who's this big, rugged, uh, badass, like lumberjack looking lady. She, we learn very later on in the series, she was a former stu uh, uh, camper there. Some of the supporting characters that we meet are Jen. She's the leader of the camper's uh, bunk called the Roanoke Cabin. Jen is their cabin leader. So she's a, a naive girl who's always just trying to look after the lumberjanes. They're always so uh, dead set on going on all these crazy adventures, even though there's all this endless trouble and danger all surrounding them. Jen always kind of just gets caught up in the middle of it and is caught in the crossfire of everything. Early on, we learn that like the first, iter first iteration we have with like weird mystical monsters is 
There's a boys' summer camp on the opposite side of the lake, and somehow they have been mind-controlled and turned into werewolves that randomly start attacking the girls when they're off in the woods. I mean, there's never any sort of, like, death threats or anything, like, gone that far. There's not much danger at the end of every issue. They always wrap everything up nice and neatly. It's mostly just a fun sort of fantasy kind of funny story, I guess is what's, what it has going for it. Jen is the counselor of the Rodnell cabin. And then just for one single issue, for some reason, there is a, another counselor at the camp named Seafaring Karen, who was a sort of pirate boat captain who got shipwrecked and randomly Rosie just found her in the woods crying one day when she couldn't get back to her boat. Offered her a camp counselor job. She accepted and she's now in charge of the knot tying activity at the camp. Seafaring Karen, we later realize she is also a werewolf. She's a good werewolf. She's more like a friendly were dog, I guess. They never really indicate one way or another if she's full on wolf or just like a dog. But she's a good one regardless. The same issue with Seafaring Karen. We meet a group of women who are were seals which are apparently a thing in this land they <laughs> they have to have their pelts which are sort of like their jackets which they can take on and off and that's what gives them the power to turn from human to full-blown seal um the reason they, they they take over seafaring karen's boat and they're kind of stuck there because one of their members lost her jacket there's another woman we meet named Nellie. Nellie is a, I'm not going to say she's a werebear, but she has the ability to shapeshift into a fucking bear. She, we learn later on, is the former camp counselor back when Rosie attended the camp. And now she's just kind of the protector of these woods. She has the ability to transport from dimension to dimension because there's a parallel dimension where a lot of the monsters and everything live. And it's her job to go and find all these rips in the portals, rips and portals from the regular dimension to the one where like the Lumberjanes camp is. So oftentimes we'll randomly run into her in the woods when she's trying to get something fixed, put something back. Like there's a random outbreak of dinosaurs. One issue where she has to get the Lumberjanes to help her, get them all back to the other dimension. This issue with Seafaring Karen and the Witter Seals she has Ripley and Molly helping her out, uh, trying to, there's a rip in the dimensional portals, and she's trying to get them all filled up and stop all the gaps so they stop just having everything from the one dimension flow over into the normal world. And it's during this time that we learn that Molly actually has some sort of special aura to her, where Nellie sees that she actually has the potential to be like a, a future replacement as a protector of the dimensions for her. And she kind of like inquires if that's something she would consider doing. And she kind of leaves it at uh, maybe in the future. But right now she's just having fun at her summer camp. So that could be a potential twist at some point in the time in the storyline. Summer camper um, from Rosie's time named Abigail. Who it turns out is just a giant monster hunter. She's in the world there just capturing, killing, and mounting the heads of every exotic, crazy dream creature that she can find there. Like they show this one uh, full page uh, collection or they show a full page look into her collection um, and she's got like a unicorn head mounted. She's got chupacabra. It's like anything you can think of like mystical, like rumored 
not real creatures and then it's just a bunch of like random like monkeys with like tusks and horns just to you know throw off weird weird creature vibes um abigail is spending her entire life trying to hunt and kill a mystical creature called the Grootslang. basically it's a giant monster elephant headed tusked snake centipede creature so that's that's a thing that exists in that world as well Basically, the girls end up saving it or saving Abigail from it by giving it back a giant diamond called its heart diamond. They, they kind of found it in uh, Abigail's uh, treasure vault and Job just offers it to him in exchange for letting the human race uh, continue to exist. So that's that's the power level that, that guy had where the Groots is lying. Could have just wiped out all of humanity had it chosen to, but it, it decided to throw us a bone and let him live. And another adventure that they have in the most recent book that I read is they find mermaids living in the uh, lake at the camp. April, is, you learn, is obsessed with mermaids. And so she makes her own little scuba suit and she goes down to befriend all the mermaids that she can. And they find one mermaid who is having a fight with her former band members and uh, the running gag the entire time. Is Mal just keeps asking how can they play guitars and how can you listen to music and everything in the water? How does that possibly work without everyone getting electrocuted and just dying? Which is a very fair point. Funny running gag that they do the entire issue. But basically at the end it ends with Mal or I'm sorry, April getting down in the water and helping all of the uh, mermaid people and the band like re refine their friendship and get reunited and kick out the like shitty members of the band who kicked out the one main mermaid girl and also other mystical creatures that we find there there's a giant sea serpent type Loch Ness monstery looking things there's like three of them those show up those, those cause a little bit of havoc but of course at the end of the day the day is saved everything is fine this is kind of like an ideal book for children but at the same time it's fun and there's enough like kind of hinted at adult humor in there and people even like my age will enjoy it. It's kind of like the closest thing I've ever found to like a Gravity Falls all-girls cast comic book series as opposed to a TV show. So if you're a fan of anything like that, I mean, it's definitely something worth checking out. Most of the sort of indie collections that I've read recently is Outcast. It's another Image comic book. Um, Image, we all know, the company created by and ran by Robert Kirkman, the man who also created and writes The Walking Dead. So... It's, it's another sort of similar to that storyline, except instead of like zombies, this one is all centered around demon possession. It stars a man named Kyle Barnes who uh, takes place in the made up town of Rome, West Virginia. He's kind of uh, possessed. He's not possessed. He's, he's sort of like the anti-possessed member of the sword book. There's a man in black who, who, for the most part, that is always referred to as is the man in black. He... Enters the town kind of out of nowhere one day, and he starts, he, he's super friendly to Kyle Barnes, and he's always trying to hang around Kyle Barnes. And we learn later on that it's because Kyle Barnes has this light power inside of him, and it's what attracts the the darkness, the, the opposites, the, the sort of devils. It deals a lot with demonic possession, and so lots of times they, they don't really know exactly how to refer to all the characters. So depending on which character's point of view or perspective, if you're looking at like uh Kyle's biggest associate his ally is Reverend Anderson so anytime Reverend Anderson refers to him he refers to Kyle as the angels and he refers to Sydney and his followers as the demons 
or as the Devils. When you're talking to like Sydney or Kyle specifically, they usually just refer to it as the light and the dark. Um, so it all depends on who whose point of view it is, what they refer to them as, and what they're called. Basically, Sydney shows up in the town. He just starts possessing people. It's a weird kind of way that he does it. Like he uh, spreads this little like dark black kind of gooky substance that just kind of seeps into them, into their pores. And that's kind of how they start the process of being possessed. We learn sort of later on in the series when we save, when Kyle saves uh, Giles, the police chief of the city who had been possessed. They, they get to him in time and they learn that you have like a set, I think it's a like 72 hour window where they're sort of going through the transformation. So they're really weak and sick and they just kind of lay up in a bed in the darkness away from any sunlight. We find later on when Kyle meets his long lost dad, Simon, and they start training, learning how to like hone Kyle's power to actually use it to its full potential. We'll see them go into these like dark, boarded up, shadowy homes, and they will train by just practicing beating the uh, demonic mess, the black book, out of all the people that they can save. They try to save as many people as possible. So that's kind of like the last issue I read, which is the one with Simon where he makes his first appearance. You learn he's, he's Kyle's long-lost dad who kind of had a bail on him because we also learned that the darkness is attracted to that light. So if he had stayed with Kyle and the two of them in the same household together, it would have been a bit too strong of a, a reading for all the uh, evil darkness demon people, and they would have easily gone and possessed him and taken him over, and I guess sort of fed off the light is what they do. So he bailed out on Kyle when he was a really young kid. So we do learn later on, and in this issue, what's going on is Kyle, Reverend Anderson, Giles has nearly been saved and is now on their team. They go and they get Kyle's estranged ex-wife, or they're in the process of, they're separated. I don't know if they're still married. I think they are. They go and get her and his daughter, Amber, and they bring them to this uh, secluded little barn area that Giles had initially bought as a home that he was going to live in with his wife, Rose, who is one of Sydney's uh, possessed demons and has been for a long time, so there's no saving her anymore. Amber Barnes, they move into the little house with everyone else as well so they can be protected and make sh Kyle can make sure his daughter and his wife are as safe as they can be considering what's going on. During this time, Simon is just training, so it's kind of like a big, long training montage there's just full-blown pages of just the two of them like practicing the skills to hone the power of the light and then go into these uh, houses where the, the demonic possession is kind of like in, in circle or going in full bloom. And they're just beating the snot out of everyone in there and just beating all the uh, darkness out of them, trying to save as many people as humanly possible. We were led to believe that Sydney was like the leader of the darkness, but we learned that there's a, a council of evil fucking whatever they are demonic they've got like their own little round table of uh demonic bosses mob boss i guess I, I don't even know what to call them they're not they're not a mob at all but that's what we're gonna call them here so we learned that they're trying to figure out like what to do once sydney gets killed because reverend anderson he actually ends up killing him it happens right before right at the end of the last issue before this one but we're dealing with the aftermath of that or they are so they assign a new man just get a couple looks of him looking as menacing as can be. He does make a stop by Kyle Barnes's mother's hospital room late at night after visiting hours are closed. He goes in there and he tells her that everything that's happening now and is going to happen to her son and granddaughter is her fault. 
because she was originally possessed way back in the day, and it was her job to kind of steal the powers of Kyle and let them all sort of feed off of it or whatever the fuck they do with these light powers. And she refused to do it. She would kind of like beat him. And then she'd realize, oh no, this is my son. I love him. I need to stop doing this. So she would lock him in a closet for his own safety. Which growing up, he thought it was just because she hated him and was an abusive mother, which she was. But he didn't realize she had this de demonic possession going on inside of her. So one day he finally fights back against her. And it's kind of similar to what he does with the, de the possessed people where he beats the possession out of her. But in the process, it also, she uh, put into a catatonic-like state. So she she's alive still, but she's on uh, heavy, heavy uh, medical guidance and watch, or on a watch list by the uh, hospital. She can't move. She's she's just laying there kind of lifeless. So this man comes in there and he, he threatens her and he threatens Kyle and he threatens the, the granddaughter. And then he proceeds to just beat the hell out of her. And that's kind of where the issue leaves off with this guy proving the point that he is trouble and he is a big time bad guy that we're going to have to look out for in future issues. Um, but also at the same time, we're seeing Kyle now hone his skill and start to get stronger and stronger and learn how to possess and use the good that he has, the light that he has to actually combat these uh, uh, possessed people. So it's going to be interesting to see where it goes from here. All right. Very last thing here. It's another DC book, another rebirth storyline here that I got into. It's the latest from Batman. It's called The War of Jokes and Riddles. What this one is, it's the entire thing is Batman is just retelling the story to Catwoman when the, one morning when they're in bed waking up together. He, he's kind of troubled by what transpired in this entire story. So he's kind of like checking with her for uh, support. And he had previously proposed to her in the issue before so at the end of it, his big question to her is if knowing what terrible things he almost did throughout the storyline, if she still wants to marry him and still loves him and can forgive him for what transpired. Throughout this issue, for some reason, they kind of changed the Riddler completely. Like he's no longer just the sort of like wimpy, super smart character who just kind of is a pushover physically. This version of the Riddler, for some reason, is like this insanely good looking, charming, charismatic, handsome skilled hand-to-hand -hand combat fighting version of the Riddler, which is really, really weird. But I mean, I guess since he's combating the Joker, you kind of had to really up his game. Um, what, what what happens, what causes this giant rift between them is they're, they're both reflecting, they're, they're both in like a little funk. Joker, he's, uh, he's lost the ability to laugh, so he's just going around killing an endless slew of people, just murdering everyone he comes into contact with, just trying to bring back his laughter because we all know the Joker is uh, fucked up. The only thing he finds funny is killing people. And for whatever reason, no matter how many people he kills, no matter how brutally, no matter how gruesomely, no matter how like innocent and unarmed and unthreatening they are, nothing can make him laugh. So the Riddler comes to him with the uh, proposal that since Batman is the only riddle he's never been able to solve and it's the only joke that the Riddler's never been able to laugh at, that the two of them combine forces, work together, and kill the Batman together. Joker takes a second, he thinks about this, and then he just shoots the Riddler in the gut. Uh, Batman kind of, I, I don't know why Batman was kind of there in the area, but he is. And he has a split-second decision. He knows how much time the Riddler has left before he bleeds out and dies. But he has a chance to actually catch the Joker and potentially stop him. 
So he leaves the Joker there on the floor of the office and he chases after the Joker. Inevitably, like always, the Joker escapes. Riddler does somehow miraculously get away though and he, he finds a doctor that he has who was a former surgeon but he, he was fired because he started selling prescription drugs to his brother-in-law and long story short he, he's no longer a doctor he's, he's just doing like um, sidearm emergency medical type procedures on villains to earn whatever extra cash you can get so he saves the riddler as a thank you the riddler murders this man and leaves a riddle for uh, Gordon and for all of um, uh, the Batman and Gotham City Police Department. So right after that, right after the Riddler makes his recovery, we see him walking with Poison Ivy. And like I said before, for whatever reason, he's like this super charming, charismatic version of the Riddler. And Poison Ivy agrees to side with him in the upcoming war because he's, he's letting the intentions known to Ivy that it's going to be an all-out bloodbath between him and whoever's with him against Joker and whoever's with the Joker. There is no middle ground. There is no getting out of town right now before everything uh, escalates. It's either you're with Joker or you're with Riddler or else you're dead. Those are the three options. So they divide up like the cavalcade of uh, Batman's like enemies. And the one huge issue I had with this entire thing is throughout the entire Rebirth relaunch, Clayface has been hand-selected by Batman be on his new sort of bat family team in the batman detective Comics series in spite of this clayface still appears as one of the uh, villains here in this series which that kind of annoyed me uh, i mean there's no continuity between like the dc writers in their own batman storylines uh, that, that one was kind of that was kind of my biggest gripe on this entire issue it was just that clayface shows up as a uh, page filler random enemy for Batman and for Riddler's team to just take out but he's there um it's everyone else like there's no Bane because the previous Batman issues were him two straight issues were him uh, trying to finally best Bane which he does at the end of volume three so Bane is locked away right now there is no Penguin because he's off in the Bloodhaven he's in the Nightwing series but I mean it's mostly lots of the other big name hitters like the bruisers on each team, you've got um, Killer Croc on the one side, you've got Man Bat, uh, Clayface, you've got, let's see who else, you got Poison Ivy, you got Two Face, um, what's the man's name? Mr. Freeze, and then we've also got Firefly. And the interesting thing about this entire series is like the key character in all of this is kite man which I, I don't really have much familiarity with i mean he's, he's a random character in like the lego batman games it's like a funny joke character for children but we get a whole backstory all about kite man and like why he initially like became a, a bat guy so it's a lot of fun to actually see that and read that and learn about kite man initially what it is is kite man is one of four people who uh, helped the riddler or i'm sorry who helped the joker create the joker mobile Joker, after that, kills off the other three guys that worked on it, but keeps Charlie Brown, the name of that Kite Man, alive. Kite Man is a failed, he's just a failure. He's a terrible thief in Gotham. And so his ex-wife just constantly like lets his son know, their son know, what a huge fuck-up and failure her, his father is. So all throughout the story, we see like a sort of really touching like backstory with Kite Man and his son. Because he's Riddler knows that he's got connections with the Joker and he's going to go inside with Joker, obviously, if any for any reason Joker decides that this loser is someone worth bringing aboard. So the Riddler kills his son just to inspire him specifically to go and join with the Joker. 
And then he knows later on that he's going to kidnap him, torture him, and force him to spill all of the Joker's uh, big plans and all of his like secret hiding spots just so that he can then go and wipe out everyone on the Joker's team, in theory. The other fun thing about this is there's a one hour, it, so it's kind of like the east side of Gotham, the west side of Gotham, and then there's like a middle park area where that's mostly where all the bloodshed and murdering is happening. And it's not just like the guys from one side of the villains and the other side of the villains gallery. It's just anyone who lives in Gotham is getting killed in this little park area in the field. So there's a one hour a day window where they all kind of stop fighting and killing and they let the Gotham City Police Department come in and just haul out the bodies. That's all they get to do. That's all the Gotham City Police Department is allowed to do in this entire fight. They come in, clear out the bodies for an hour, and then it's just back to more and more bloodshed and killing. All throughout the entire thing, Batman is always showing up just seconds too late. He's not able to save anyone. So all the news reporters and everyone around Gotham is starting to question whether or not Batman's even like worth believing in or whether or not he's doing any good for the city of Gotham or if he's just causing more problems. Because everyone knows that both Joker and Riddler, they promise that the only way they'll stop this war is if they get the Batman. Bruce Wayne and Commissioner Gordon arrange a sit-down dinner at the Wayne Manor with Riddler and with uh, Joker. And they kind of discuss everything, and Bruce Wayne kind of pitches the idea. He's like, look, I'm the most uh, wealthy man in all of Gotham. You guys name a price. I'll pay you whatever you want. Just stop killing all of my uh, fellow Gothamites. I want to stop this. And they explain to him, the only way we're going to stop it is when we get, is when one of us gets the Batman. And then whoever doesn't get him is then going to try to kill whoever got him. So Batman realizes at the end of this meeting that he has no, he just has one hand left to play. And he tricks Riddler into thinking that he's teaming up with Riddler. So Batman starts going off on all the missions with Riddler and all of Riddler's thugs. And they are taking out the entire Joker force. It's down to just Joker and Kite Man at the end. That's his one big bodyguard standing in the way of victory for the Riddler is the Kite Man. Uh, Riddler knew in his previous plan that he was going to get to him and torture him. And that's kind of when this all goes down. So he tricks Kite Man into explaining or into spilling where Joker is hiding out this entire time. And he spills everything instantly. What the Riddler doesn't know is that Kite Man and Batman have been working together this entire time to spoil the Riddler and finally put an end to this war. Riddler has Kite Man build sort of like parasails for all of his uh, his crew so they can, because the Joker is hiding out on this giant tower way up on, I think it's the 73rd floor is where he is. The entire thing is rigged with explosives so that no one can make their way up or down from like the roof or the stairway without the Joker knowing and just blowing everyone up and killing them and escaping. So everyone has to parasail in through the window on the 73rd floor. Catwoman, who is working for Batman, she's no longer a bad guy. She's not on either team. She kind of gets up there and lets him know and tells him where exactly it is that the Joker is. And then she also cuts a hole in the glass in the window so they can all make their way in. So it gets to the final showdown where Riddler and all of his thugs parasail their way in there. Batman is with them, of course, because he thinks he's Riddler thinks he's his big bruiser, his big uh, answer to whatever the Joker has cooked up. Unbeknownst to the Riddler, the Kite Man and Batman have rigged all of the parasails with this immediate uh, spring action or button-activated 
trap that'll just uh, send them all up into the air where Alfred is creating uh, some kind of magic wind propulsion using the bat plane, whatever the fuck that thing is. And so all the parachutes on the parasails open and they all get sucked up into it. They all lose consciousness magically and Alfred can easily apprehend every single one of them. So it's down to just Kite Man, Joker, Riddler, and Batman. A big brawl ensues between Riddler and Joker. They nearly kill one another. Joker is actually getting his ass kicked throughout all of this, which is weird. But I mean, yeah, they really upped they really upped the Riddler throughout this series for some reason. So it comes down to the final minutes and there's a knife on the table and there's a gun on the table. Batman grabs the knife and he is going to stab the, the Riddler to end this war. He, he realizes the only way this war and all this bloodshed and all the uh, Gothamites are going to stop dying is if he kills one of these two men. Joker has just gotten his ass kicked. He's not really a threat at this point in time. He figures he can just take him in no problem. Riddler is the clear dominant winner. So he decides he has to kill the Riddler. So he picks up the knife, he comes in, he's going to stab him in the heart. And just at the last second, Joker holds up his hand, stops the blade with his hand. It just goes right through Riddler, or Joker's hand. And finally, Joker is able to laugh at the irony of him being the one to save the Riddler's life. Even after he tried killing the Riddler earlier on in the issue. And so Batman takes care of the two of them and just throws them back in Arkham, I guess. So they can break out in a little bit. But the end of the issue is him in bed with Catwoman. Telling her this whole story, even though she was involved in part of it, I don't really know why he had to retell her, like, all of her dialogue that she had with him. That was another kind of, like, stupid thing that they kind of neglected to, or kind of ignored to fix up in their retelling of the story. Obviously, it was in there just so that we could see what the fuck they were saying to each other. But I don't know why he has to retell it to Catwoman in his synopsis. But anyway, he does. And he, he says he was going to absolutely kill Riddler. He was not going to stop until he was dead and he could stop the war. And that's when he kind of like breaks down and he asks Catwoman if she can still possibly ever love him, knowing that he actually had the power and had the uh, drive to actually kill a person. And that was the one thing that had always separated him from all of the evil people, was that he was never willing to cross that line and kill or at least in like this retelling of Batman's history, he never was. So that's kind of where that one left off. Catwoman says, of course, she still loves him, still wants to marry him. So hopefully that will happen soon. We'll see them get married. But yeah, that's what I've been reading. I've been talking way too long. My voice is hurting me right now. And you are, you've got to be sick of listening to it. So I'm going to wrap this up. I do want to thank our, our dude, Donnie Lewandowski. If you need any audio, video, uh, audio or video editing done, go to DonaldLevandowski.com, hit him up, tell him Jurassic have Black Tons podcast sent you there, and maybe he'll give you a, a deal. Probably not. He'll charge you more, probably, because of the shit that we make him go through to clean us up. Follow us everywhere online. Anywhere you can get a podcast, you can find us, and you can subscribe to us. You can like us, you can share us with your friends and family and loved ones or your enemies. Make them listen to this shit. Um, leave us some reviews. Spread us around to anyone you know. Tell them to do the exact same shit. Follow us on Twitter at GiraffesHBTPod. I know that's terrible and super hard to remember. It was the only thing we could get, so fuck off. You can follow me specifically at God. Yeah, we'll, we'll maybe do this again. Hopefully next time it'll be a lot smoother, a lot crisper. Hopefully I'll have someone join me the next time I try to do one of these. 
I want to do one right before the uh, baseball season kicks off and have one of my buddies join me and kind of like preview what we think is going to happen all year long. I just don't want to be the one only one talking this long and I know none of you want to hear that shit either. But yeah, uh, I'm wrapping it up now. All right. Enjoy. Listen to this shit. Love it. Rate it. Subscribe. Share it. You know, listen for future episodes that are coming.